Philippians chapter 1. We'll read the first 11 verses once again. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you, Father, for the things we've just read and for the, um, the privilege of participating in the gospel, for the confidence that Paul expresses. And God, we pray as we look at this tonight that you would grip our own hearts by it. Lord, we thank you for the... Um, the work that you have done since really before time began to redeem and bring a people to yourself. And we thank you, Father, that as surely as, as you've, it is your work that you've begun, that you will complete it. And there's, there's nothing that can stop you. There's nothing that can disrupt your plan. There's nothing that can hinder you in any way. You accomplish all your good purposes you accomplish them in your way and as you please and in your time god we pray that our hearts would be settled upon that matter and that we would not um that we would not doubt it in any way we thank you father that this is true not just on an individual level and it is true individually for the believer but it's also true in cosmic proportions, there's there's nothing over which you do not rule or any area in which it's outside of your authority or ability to um, to work. So we praise you, Father, for your, your sovereignty. We praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your consistency. And God, we thank you and praise you that you have brought us into this kingdom of light and that we're not any longer the objects of your wrath but that we have been made to be children now god we pray that you would help us as we look into this passage tonight help us father to live upon it we ask in jesus name amen well we're getting tonight in verse three through verse 11 we have prayer that 
pardon me, a prayer that Paul offers following the, the greeting and salutation that he makes in verses 1 and 2. We will not be able to cover it all tonight, but we will get part of it. And as we read, we um, are able to get some insight into Paul and his care for this church um, in much more of a, a deeper way than reading anyone else's letter. I mean, in a sense, we're reading Paul's mail, right? It's a letter that he's written to the church at Philippi, and it's been preserved for us. Um, but it's more than just a letter in the sense of, of reading someone else's mail. I, I have a, a book of letters of John Newton that are helpful, but it's not the same thing as reading Paul's letter, right? Because Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is a, uh, there's a, a divine author who's speaking through Paul. And so what we have here is something better than the letters of John Newton or of anyone else outside of Scripture. So we see not only something of Paul's thinking, but we also see an expression of the love of Jesus to the church at Philippi and to us today. Also, as we look at this prayer, um, I think it's helpful to stop and think for just a second of what Paul says to the church in chapter 4 and verse 6. When he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So this is his exhortation to the church at Philippi. Don't be anxious about anything, but pray. Take it to God. And what does he do in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8? He does just that. Paul from prison, a church he's concerned about. But rather than be anxious, he speaks of his joy and he expresses gratitude to God for them and makes petitions for them. So Paul demonstrates that here. As we begin to look at this, I think we'll get through verse 8, verses 3 through 8 tonight. And... Um, He introduces his prayer in verses 3 and 4, and then verses 5 through 8 really are something of a parenthesis in the prayer. We'll get to that in a moment. But let's begin with verses 3 and 4 as he expresses his his thankfulness for them. Verses 3 and 4 again, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And as he prays for them, it's not just certain ones among the Philippians that he is especially thankful for, but it's the Philippians, the the entire church body that he knows there. Um, In verse 3, when he says, in remembrance of you, it is the plural. So you could say you all there, y'all. Interestingly, in the next verse, he does say you all, but there are two words there. It's the plural you and all. So I guess it's all y'all. But he is talking about you know, more than one single person, to, to all the church, the individuals that make up this body. I'm thankful for you. And again, you have to kind of stop and think, is, you know, is Paul just being polite? Is this like what you say in a letter? I'm thankful for you. Is he speaking kind of evangelically, you know, uh, exaggerating a bit? It's not reality. So, you know, really, there's some of you I'm thankful for, and some of you really are burning my saddle, but I can't say that in a letter. So I'm thankful for all of you. Well, no, Um, it's not what he means. And it's all the more remarkable when you stop and think about who Paul is and who the audience is or who Paul was and who the audience was. You know, there are times when you have people who 
are close and I mean they have a lot of common interest and maybe in most regards they you know see eye to eye but still there are differences and there are times when maybe you just rub each other the wrong way even though you really have a lot in common but then there are those people that you don't have a lot in common with and there are so many differences that it almost seems overwhelming well stop and think about again who Paul was and who these people were Paul says something about who he was in chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, where he says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Here is a man who is, you know, he was very Jewish. He's a Pharisee. And what does he have to do with Gentiles? Nothing. As little as possible. He says he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And so, regarding the church, of which the Philippians are now a church, you know, a persecutor. Very zealous in his persecution of them. And then you think about who the Philippians were. Gentiles. Here is Lydia, who is a Gentile businesswoman from Asia. And the Philippian jailer, a Roman jailer. Others who, you know, from very pagan backgrounds. You remember there wasn't a synagogue there. There's so little interest in the things that Paul would have been interested in, in Philippi, that there's not enough people to form a synagogue. And so... From worlds apart. And yet because of the gospel. They've been brought near to each other. And Paul can say. Every time I think about you. I give thanks. Remarkable. And it is. The work of God. God had done something. In the heart of Paul. And God had done something. In the hearts of the Philippians. So that these people. Who once may have despised each other. Now cared for one another with deep affection. And so as Paul considers the Philippians and thanks, is thankful for them, to whom is he thankful? Well, to God who's done this work. I, am, I thank my God, he says. And we'll talk more about that in a moment, but just to mention it there, that's the one who the thanksgiving is directed to. Not thanking the Philippians at this point, but I'm thankful to God when I think of you because of what God has done in you and what He's done in me and how He's brought us together. But when is He thankful? Well, in verse 3, He says again, in all my remembrance of you. And the idea really is that every time He thinks of them, it's, it's with thanksgiving. So sitting in a jail cell, you know, chained to, to prisoner, to, to guards rather, um, as his mind perhaps thinks around the churches that he has seen begun in his missionary journeys, he gets to the church at Philippi. And every time he thinks about them, there's reason to be thankful to God. Or before he finds himself in prison, as he's traveling from place to place, maybe someone comes to him and they they talk to him about what they've seen at Philippi, or there's something else that reminds him of those people. And every time he thinks of them, it's reason for thanksgiving. You think of all the trouble that the Apostle Paul had endured 
And we've seen passages where he describes it, all the beatings and the shipwrecks and all those kinds of things that he's endured. And he's endured a lot. Endured most, more, more than most people. You think about the concerns that he has. There are concerns for the churches that he talks about. And then, you know, there are letters here in the New Testament where he's writing to address concerns that he has. And he's, you know, he's weighed down at times by these concerns because he doesn't want to see this work thwarted in some way. He doesn't want to see false teachers come in and, and muddy up the waters. He doesn't want people who seem to have made a good start to fall away. And with all of that, he still says, when I think of you, it's like a bright spot. It's a reason to give thanksgiving to God. When he thanks God for them, this thankfulness demonstrates itself through prayer. In verse 4, Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. So he's moved to joyful prayer. This is um, the first time we find him mentioning the word joy, which becomes a bit of a recurring theme throughout the book. And it is a, a joy that the Philippians know something about. He's writing to the Corinthians, speaks of the joy of the Philippians in sharing in the gospel, sending a, a, you know, money to help him. Um, so it's something that they've known, but perhaps they're, they're starting to lag a little bit with all that's going on with them. And so here's a, a bit of a reminder at the beginning that he picks up again and again. When I think of you, it's with joy, and I pray with joy. The word prayer here is one that could be translated supplication. It's the idea of coming to God with specific petitions. So not just a general prayer, but... He's coming to petition God on their behalf. I think of you with thanksgiving and I bring requests to God on your behalf. And when I come and bring those requests, I come with joy. So we could say is Paul prepared to petition God for the needs of the Philippians? He cannot help but stop and give thanks to God, giving praise to God. For them. Now, notice that if if you jump from verse four to verse nine, you could. It's not like it it makes sense. Verse four says, "Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all." Verse nine, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. He picks right up again with his prayer. But in verses 5 through 8, there's a bit of a parenthesis where he explains to them the reasons for his thankfulness. What is it that he sees that makes him so thankful upon every remembrance of the Philippians? And there's a couple of things. And the first one really is more of an evidence of the second thing. But he he tells us these two things. And we'll look at that now. But... I guess before we get into that even, I want to to point out that as Paul prays for them and as he talks about the things that he sees in them, we see both something of his heart and of his mind. So Paul is not devoid of emotion as he thinks about them or prays for them. 
he, he's not just all, you know, logic and, and cut and dried, but, but there's heart there also. And so you see him saying things like in verse 7, it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Or in verse 8, God is my witness, how I long for you all. The word long is, is one that speaks of intensity of longing. He, he's not talking about just a, a passing feeling, but he yearns for them. There's, there's a, a longing, a deep and earnest longing for them. And he says, I do this with the affection of Christ Jesus. Not just the affections of, of Paul or, or of Saul of Tarsus, you know, pre-converted Paul. But with the affections of Christ. The word of affections, you might have a, a footnote there. Um, it's kind of cleaned up language from King James, which would have said something more like bowels of compassion. <laughs> um, he's saying you know, there's, there's a visceral response. I, it's it's a, you know, a feeling that goes down into my gut. <laughs> I, I am viscerally moved for, for you. I, I have this deep of an earnest longing for you. And it's a longing in Christ Jesus. It's not a light and passing kind of feeling. It's a deep and abiding feeling that he has. And so not just, um, you know, not devoid of emotion. There's deep emotion here. But in his emotion, it's not a gushing sentimentality. It's not just feel-good feelings that he has, you know. But there's logic there also. There's, there's reason. The feelings that he has give expression to what he knows about them and what he's seen in them. So in verse 7 he says, it's only right for me to feel this way about you. In other words, it would not be right for me not to feel this way about you. I see something that's true about you that, that makes me feel this way and it's right for me to have these feelings. The feelings are in line with the truth that I see. There's not a disconnect between those two things. Now, some might wonder, is this exaggeration? You know, is, is he... Is he, he's using hyperbole to, to express something, but he's really overstating a little bit to try to get a point across. Is that what he's doing? I don't think so. Verse 8 begins with, For God is my witness, how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He calls God to witness. So, not hyperbole, not exaggeration. This is what he sees and it's right then for him to have this kind of a feeling about them in light of what he sees. So what is it that he sees? In verse 5 he says, In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And he picks up this idea again in verse 7. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. The word participation in verse 5 and the word partakers in verse 7, 
come from the same root word. Uh, verse 5, participation or fellowship translates a word that you may have heard of before, koinonia. Um, and verse 5 is, is a related word, same root. This word does carry the idea of, of fellowship or participation or partnership or association. It comes from a, a root word that means common. And so it could be something common as opposed to something special. You might have you know, common dishes that you use every day and special dishes that only come out on special occasions. That word could be used in that setting. But it could also be used to speak of something uh, of common ownership. We own this thing together. Or of a common interest or the common good. But in, in Konania, there's a, a, another part of the word added to that root. And the idea is a fellowship in something or a partnership in something that leads to participation and sharing. So it's more than the idea of, of a partnership in which maybe one person is um, kind of the brains and the money and someone else has to go and do the work. But here's a participation in something which you're both laboring together in. There's a sharing in this thing that, that, that you're both investing in and putting in work toward. So this fellowship that he speaks of here, or this participation or partaking of in verse 7 that he speaks of is, is not the kind of fellowship around a meal, as wonderful as that can be. It's not the kind of, of fellowship or participation in, in like a small group study in which we, we talk to each other and you know, how you're doing spiritually and you try to encourage one another. As wonderful as that can be, that's not really what he's talking about here. This participation that he speaks of in verse 5, he says, is a participation in the gospel. Or perhaps better, a participation in regard to the gospel. They have been united together in the gospel and they now labor together in this toward a common goal, toward the spread of this gospel. It's not just, um, again, that we have been united around the cross. That's true. But it's a step further than that. We now are working and laboring together in the cause of Christ. Paul says this is true from the first day until now. What was it that had brought them together in the first place? Well, it was the gospel. Paul was not on vacation in Europe when he stumbled across Lydia and the other women at the riverside. You know, it wasn't a campground. He was camping and they were camping and they, they happened to meet. He was there for the gospel. And as he talked to them about the gospel, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe. And that's what brought them together. And they've shared that cause and continued to share that cause and that shared uh, goal of seeing the gospel advance since that time. It's estimated that the book of Philippians is written maybe 10 years after the church at Philippi was founded. 
And the letter to Philippians occurs maybe three or four years after the letter to 2 Corinthians. So, say six years after the church is founded, how are they participating in the gospel? What are they doing? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, Paul writes about the churches of Macedonia and Philippi, is the first place he stops in Macedonia. And it is kind of one of the leading churches in that area. And so when he speaks of the churches in Macedonia, I understand him to be speaking also of them, the church at Philippi. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1 says, Now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy... And their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Participation there, by the way, is the same as the participation here in Philippians. It's a fellowship in this cause. They begged us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So, six years after the church is founded, roughly, what are they up to? Well, they're begging Paul for the favor of participating in his gospel labors. Let us help you. We, we don't want to sit back and from their poverty they are giving abundantly to help him in this cause now they're still supporting Paul Paul imprisoned the church at Philippi sends Epaphroditus with a gift to him to help care for him and in chapter 4 and verse 10 He writes, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance And suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. The word share there, the same root as the participation that we saw back in uh, chapter 1. Verse 15. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone... For even in Thessalonica, you send a gift more than once for my needs. And so what you begin to see, I think, is that there's this pattern of them caring for Paul, sharing with him, participating in his labors. And Paul looks at that as as a participation in the gospel in which they are joined together in fellowship for this gospel purpose. And they've become kind of partners in this. And he sees that and he sees their ongoing labor 
as an evidence of the work of God in them. And so every time he thinks of them, he thinks about how they have given above and beyond themselves out of their poverty to help him, sending Epaphroditus to him in his need as he's imprisoned. And just over and over again, they have labored, begged for the privilege of participating. And he looks at that, his heart's moved to thanksgiving. And how could he not then go to God on their behalf with petitions, with joy? How could he do anything else? But it's not just what he sees in the Philippians. What he sees in the Philippians is an evidence of something else, a greater reality. Something that's behind what the Philippians are doing. There's, there's a, something that's moving them to be a participant in this gospel labor. And he describes that in verse 6 as he speaks of a, a Godward confidence. He says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So again, what Paul has expressed in the previous verses is the evidence he sees of a greater reality. There is a work occurring in the Philippians. That work is continuing in and among the members of the church there. And Paul is confident of the character of this work because he knows that nothing and no one can stop this work. His confidence is not in the Philippians. It's not the character of the Philippians. It's not even their track record, as wonderful as it is. It's not in them as a church. It's not in them as individuals. His confidence is in the work of God in them. He's seen the fruit. He's seen the evidence of that. He understands something of the gospel. He understands Not only the content of the gospel, but what the gospel does, what it accomplishes. And he sees the evidence of that. And seeing that, knowing that, he has great confidence for himself, as he writes from prison, for the Philippians. Now, no one who is murky about the gospel... And what God is doing through the gospel can see what Paul sees. You can't really feel what Paul feels about his own situation or about the Philippians if you're murky about what is occurring as God works through the gospel. Whenever we begin to be overcome with worry, whenever we become overly introspective, when we tend towards despair, surely it's very often because we have failed to grasp what Paul is saying here. And this is true not only in regards to how we we worry about ourselves, it's true in regards to how we might worry about the state of the church, not just Christ's church, but the state of the church.
Paul, seeing the troubles that various churches endure, seeing persecution, feeling persecution personally, nevertheless remains confident. How is he so confident? Well, again, he knows whose work it is. Verse 6 says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Who is, who is he? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? It's God. But even though it's obvious, would you consider with me for a few moments some of what he doesn't mean? What, whose work is it not? Well, Paul understands the work is not Paul's work. It was never Paul's idea to go to Philippi. When Paul began the second missionary journey, he was going to go through the churches he'd already been to. That was his plan. And the Spirit wouldn't let him. And so he thought, we'll go to Asia. And the Spirit wouldn't let him. And then, in the night, a vision came. A man from Macedonia saying, who will come and help us? Paul didn't initiate that vision. But he understood it to come from God. And so he went. It was not Paul who brought Lydia to faith in Christ. Paul was the messenger of the gospel. I mean, he, he comes and he speaks to her and he talks to her. He points her to Christ. But Paul's not the one who opened her eyes to believe. The Bible's very clear in Acts 16, 14. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Pretty clear. Paul understands. I didn't open her heart. Lydia understands. I, I didn't open my heart to believe. God opened my heart to believe. Later, as Paul is put in jail and he and Silas are, are singing to God through the night and an earthquake occurs. Who thinks Paul made the earthquake? Well, nobody. God sent the earthquake and freed them. And used that then to bring the Philippian jailer to faith. Paul understands the work isn't his. It's God's work. And not only was the work not Paul's, the work was not the Philippians. The Philippians didn't wake up one day and think, you know... We've got all this nice stuff here in Philippi, uh, this city or a colony of Rome, and there's, we've got it together in so many ways. But what we really need here is a church. And what we should do is get together a, a steering committee to set a launch date, and we're going to start a church. They never did that. Well, God sends Paul and opens Lydia's eyes, and we see the, the Philippian jailer converted. And a church has begun. They began to meet in Lydia's house. God did this. And this is Paul's confidence that the work is not his and the work is not the Philippians. The work is God's work. I am confident that he who began the work. He states it this way in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Not just created in the sense of God created the world in Genesis 1. But in the sense of this new recreation. This, this regeneration that's occurring. We are His workmanship. 
If you are convinced that Christianity is God's work, then surely that changes the way you view your life and the way you view the church. And not only does God begin or initiate this work, but God is the one who completes it. Paul again says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it or complete it. He'll bring it through to the end. He doesn't start it and then leave it unfinished. So Paul is confident because he knows whose work it is. Now, what is the nature of this work? What is it that he's doing? And that idea, I think, is expressed in the little word in, I-N. It's not God's work among you or around you, but God's work in you. This work is begun by what is described in other places in the New Testament as the new birth or the new creation. We sometimes refer to it as regeneration or being born from above. When a person becomes a Christian, they don't just turn over a new leaf. It's not just that there's a a moral reformation, but there's a very real transformation. So it's not just you deciding to be a good person now or, you know, I'm grown up now, it's time to get serious about life. But something much bigger than that has occurred. When God rescues a person, when God saves a person, it is what Henry Schugel called the life of God in the soul of man. God comes to reside in a person. Here's a person who is dead in his sins. Living for self, unconcerned about God. Lost. God's Spirit begins to work. And the person becomes aware of their sin. Aware of their lostness. Of their separation from God. The Spirit creates within this person a desire for God. And a desire to maybe clean up. The realization, I need to do away with this sin. And so you you start trying to do that. But the more you try, the more you realize you can't. You don't have the power within yourself to stop sinning. And you don't have the power within yourself to clean yourself up. And you don't have the means within yourself to, to bring yourself to God and to make things right. To reconcile yourself to Him. And the Spirit opens the eyes to see Jesus. And you see Him not as, as someone to, to you know, hold with contempt or to spurn or to try to stay away from, but you see Him now as altogether lovely. And you want Him. You want to know Him. You see what He has done to bring sinners to Himself. As the Spirit continues His work, we're made alive in Him. He forgives our sins. We become aware of a new principle at work in us. 
And though still imperfect, we begin to hate the things we once thought were really nice things, good things, things that we really desired. And we begin to love the things that we once hated and despised. And this work goes on and continues as God fashions us into the likeness of His Son. And over a lifetime, as God continues to rough, knock off rough edges and, and to, to move us in sanctification towards Christ's likeness. We look at that work and we have to say with Paul, not my doing. Not the preacher's doing. Not the church's doing, but God's doing. God is doing something. He has put a new principle at work in me. Paul understands that when God begins a work in a person, that's what he's doing. And since God is the one who begins it, he is confident that God will bring it to completion. But what does completion look like? What's the goal of this work? Paul says, I'm confident that he, of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are being prepared for that, for the day of Christ Jesus. But what is that day? When Adam and Eve sinned and fell, God began a great work. In a sense, He'd already begun it. But we could say, I guess, in time, He begins that work as He comes to them and He promises when He speaks of the seed of the woman, He begins to speak of the coming Christ, the hope of the gospel. He goes on in that, and he singles out Abraham and he makes him a nation. And the work continues throughout the New Testament, throughout the Bible, through the coming of Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. God's at work. But what's it all leading to? Even as he comes and he rescues individuals, puts churches together, all of that. What's it, what's it leading to? Well, the, the final objective is aiming toward the day when there will be new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And Jesus shall reign as king and the dead in Christ will rise and receive their glorified bodies. It's the day of final salvation when everything is consummated and completed. And I think what Paul is saying here is this. No matter what he's going through, as he awaits verdict, what will happen? I don't know. As he looks at the little church at Philippi and he's concerned for them and, and they have real concerns and they've been concerned for him. You know, the ups and downs of life that they know as a church. Whatever they're facing though, he knows something that's true. We could say it about us as well. Our ups and downs and whatever you're facing today and whatever you'll face tomorrow, with all the uncertainties of that, there's still this. The God who began this good work in the believer, will bring it all the way through to completion so that when Christ returns, you will stand before Him. And 
There is no prison that can stop that. There's no Caesar that can interrupt that. There's no false teacher that can keep that from being a reality for the believer. There's no health issue or family issue or societal issue or whatever else that can keep that from being a reality because the one who began the good work will bring it to completion. Because he will complete it, Christian, you will not be left incomplete. Paul's confidence of this, his certainty about this, rests upon the character of God Himself. He who began the work. It would be inconsistent with His character not to finish the work. Have you ever started a project and not finished it? No show of hands. No comments over here. God doesn't start things to not finish. He doesn't run out of energy. He doesn't run out of resources. He never comes to the realization, this is really just beyond me. I I thought I could do this, but I I can't. Never. He's already paid everything that must be paid. He's already decreed everything that must be decreed. He's not growing tired or weary or old. He'll complete it. And so Paul's confidence is that God's begun this. If he's begun this, he'll complete it. And so he knows joy. Now, if that's true, if that's true, And if it's not true, then we've got all kinds of problems. If that's not true, we can throw out the book of Philippians because so much of everything else that Paul says in the book of Philippians rests on this. But if that's true, then the question, the question is this. Has he begun a work in you? If he has, he will complete it. If he is not... Don't rest. Cry out to Him. Plead with Him to begin that work in you. It's all the hope you have. 